0: Throughout history and up to modern times, we invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds and allow us to enlighten, educate and explore the real reasons why black African-Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Well, you know, Courtney, when we talk about systemic racism in American institutions, nowhere is it more prevalent than in the institution of public education. Now let's remember the definition of systemic racism is when policies, practices, and procedures disadvantage one race over another. Um, You know, America has a very long history of setting all kinds of education policies that disadvantage black children.
1: And then Carol, I heard you say policies in the plural. So I'm going to guess there are many, but there is one in particular that we're going to be tackling today.
0: Yes, yes, there is, my dear niece. Today, there is a highly vocal push for something called school choice. Now, let me let me explain something. The working definition of school choice sounds pretty simple and actually pretty benign. It, it goes like this. If education operated under a policy of school choice, this would allow public education funds to follow students to the schools or services that best fit their needs. Now that would be whether it's a public school, a private school, a charter school, home school, or any other learning environment that families would choose. It's um. I guess you could say it's sort of a free market capitalistic approach to education. Well, and that's really just the opposite of the universal free public education our country is admired for having. Now, opponents of school choice believe that actually it's a way to use policy to create segregated and usually well, uh, less well-funded public schools while creating predominantly white schools that are paid for with public taxes. Now, others even argue that it's really an entree into privatizing education and turning America's free public education system, which we know is a bedrock of democracy, into a for-profit machine. Now, I'm going to talk about that theory a little bit later, but Overall, some people believe that school choice as a policy has a high potential for benefiting one group, meaning whites, while disadvantaging Black children. So technically, Court, it meets our definition of systemic racism.
1: Well, that's kind of shaky to hear, but I know we're going to talk about that more later. But what are the ways that school choice could be or is funded?
0: Well, there are several. First of all, um, there's a school voucher program. Now vouchers would give parents the freedom to choose a private school for their children using all or part of the public funding set aside for their children's education. Then there's the education savings account. These are called ESAs. They would allow parents to withdraw their children from public district or charter schools and receive a deposit of public funds into government authorized savings accounts. Then there's something called the tax credit scholarship. Now, these allow taxpayers to receive full or partial tax credits when they donate to nonprofits that provide private school scholarships. And we're going to hear about that a little bit later because that was going on in the 1950s. Now, there's something else called the tax credit and deduction. Now, the way these work. Individual tax credits and deductions would allow parents to receive state income tax relief for approved educational expenses, and these could include things like private school tuition, books, supplies, computers, tutors, and transportation. And then there's the tax credit ESA, this is a little bit different than that ESA I talked about earlier, but the tax credit ESA would allow taxpayers to receive full or partial tax credits when they donate to nonprofit organizations that fund and manage parent directed K-12 education savings accounts.
1: Okay, so what are parents getting with these vouchers, credits, and scholarships? Are they getting more bang for their buck?
0: Well, you know, Courtney, the most common schools people think uh, that could be funded by these, uh, these funds are charter schools and magnet schools and private schools. But funds could also be used to send children to other districts. Uh, that are public schools, but that you could cross district lines. Uh, those funds could be used for homeschooling. Uh, they could be used for something called hybrid homeschooling where kids go to a public school for a while and then they get homeschooled at home. Uh, another way the monies could be used could be used for online learning uh, for something called a micro schooling. That is uh, little bits of education here and there. Uh, town tuitioning, that is giving a whole town money to uh, actually run a school. They, the money could be used for personalized learning or something called learning pods. So there are a lot of different variations on the way people who want to write school policy around school choice uh, would be able to fund, give these monies to parents to, to pay for different kinds and different models of education.
1: Well, I'm going to keep it real with you. I'm going to keep it 100%. And Carol, these school choice options don't sound bad at all, but I know better. We've been doing this podcast for almost two years. I know better than to just take it at surface level when it comes to dealing with systemic racism. So I'm sure you have the real tea on what's going on behind the scenes with school choice.
0: Well, I agree with you, Courtney. You are quite astute. On the surface, school choice seems like what any reasonable parent would want. In fact, a lot of Black and people of color have been won over to the idea. But there's more to the story. There has actually been a very slow, purposeful erosion of public education after the Brown versus Board of Education desegregation case was won in the Supreme Court. Now that erosion is rooted in the Jim Crow segregated schools of the South. And it's now operating under the guise of school choice. It all goes back to the battles over white children and black children attending the same schools. But there's also something deeper than that. So even though on the surface, school choice sounds pretty, pretty benign because of its relationship to people fighting against integration, you're going to come to understand and our listeners are going to come to understand and school choices and all that it appears to be.
1: Okay, so now I see despite people claiming that it's all about a quote unquote good education, the roots of school choice go all the way back to the 50s and 60s, where the goal was. And I dare to say sometimes still is for white parents to keep their kids from going to school with black kids, especially since during that time, the 50s and 60s in the southern states, they started funding things called segregation academies for the sole purpose of their children not having to integrate with Black students.
0: Like I said, you are so smart, my dear niece. According to an article by Nevins and Bill's, segregation academies, some of which still exist today, were part of what was called massive resistance to the Supreme Court's desegregation order. Now, although massive resistance was widely supported by Southerners, Even the acclaimed Northern economists and other libertarians like Milton Friedman, who won a Nobel Prize for economics, he was a chief proponent of Virginia's massive resistance movement. Now, Friedman recognized that white Southerners, when they pushed for freedom of choice, quote unquote, that actually presented an opportunity to advance the goal of privatizing government services and resources starting with primary and secondary education. But again, more about that a little later, or as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story.
1: And I bet our listeners are going to be very surprised about what he had to say. Now, Nevins and Bills also described how entire student bodies moved away from formerly all white public schools to new private schools. And they took everything with them, everything but the the studs in the walls. They took all the trappings from the old school, the school colors, the teams, the mascots, the symbols. It's school newspaper. Like I said, leaving nothing behind pretty much but the studs in the walls
0: yep that's what happened i and i believe you have a story about a county in virginia that notoriously took this idea of segregation academies and moving schools uh, you know lock stock and barrel to private uh, schools that they took all of that to a whole new level
1: I do, Aunt Carol. And this story is one that will not only show that didn't only show me, but will show our listeners that the poisonous seeds and roots of school choice affect all children with its poisonous fruit. Now, in the 1950s, Virginia maintained a legally sanctioned racial caste system that we all know as Jim Crow. Its premise was that African-Americans, slightly more than fifth of the, uh, a fifth of the state's population, were inferior to all whites in everything, especially in a key area of public education. And that was highly sed- segregated and especially disadvantageous to Black students. The discrimination against uh, Black students was horrible. School facilities, educational materials, teacher salaries, and transportation in the separate Black system were completely and utterly inferior to those provided to white students. And Black children were denied the opportunities for economic advancement provided by public school education, limiting their chances for moving up the economic ladder. So what started in kindergarten of Affected them up into adults with lack of education. And as you said earlier, Aunt Carol, in 1954, all this was supposed to, and I put that in quotes, was supposed to change when the Supreme Court ruled that segregated schools were
0: unconstitutional. That's right. But I guess Virginia had a different idea.
1: Oh, Virginia is not only for lovers. At this time, it was for segregationists as well. Um, at that time, the Virginia governor, Thomas B. Stanley, issued a statement accepting the court's ruler, ruling. But a powerful senator by the name of Harry Byrd, who was also the head of the Byrd organization and Virginia's Democratic Party machine, wasn't having any Any of that. And this is like we talk about, it's the Democrats right up before the modern time that we're talking about now. So don't get that confused. Now, he declared that the ruling was an unconstitutional attack on states' rights. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that dog whistle Mm -hmm. perk up everyone's ears (laughs) when we hear states' rights? All the way back
0: to the Civil War. All
1: the way back to the Civil War, states' rights. And with his blessing, white community leaders and local government officials formed a political pressure group called Defenders of State Sovereignty and Individual Liberties with the sole purpose to preserve racial segregation. And they called for the use of all legal and political means to block the enforcement of the Brown versus Board of Education decision. So imagine that all these grown adults creating these groups and think tanks and all that to prevent little Black children from going to school. And mind you, uh, Carol was alive during this time. My parents were alive during this time. So this is not in the past, people. This is very recent.
0: Right, it's not ancient history. It's not the, oh, my folks didn't known slaves.
1: Oh, no, your folks may not have known slaves, but they might have tried to keep Black kids from going to school. Now, in, night, in August 1956, Governor Stanley took the next step in defiance when he convened a special session of the General Assembly to act on a package of massive resistance. And that's what the legislation was dubbed, but they called it the Stanley Plan. Most of the state's major newspapers backed massive uh, resistance in the Stanley Plan and editorialized about it both, uh, both very regularly. So this was in the newspaper, it was in the media, like this is what we want to do. We want to make sure that our kids have the best education and this is how we're going to stop it. Now here's how the Stanley Plan worked. First, it created a state pupil placement board to block the assignment of Black students to white schools using racial criteria. Next, the Stanley Plan put together three strategic components of of the massive resistance plan. First, the governor would close any school facing federal desegregation. Second, the state government would attack the NAACP's ability to bring suits and they would harass Black parents willing to serve as plaintiffs. Third, supporters of the policy created the Commission on Constitutional Government. Another dog whistle. Everybody wants to drag the Constitution in when it comes (laughs) trying to be racist. They want to dig up the ghost of Thomas Jefferson and everybody else. And that Commission on Constitutional Government wrote communication pieces defending segregation and states' rights. So this is just a litany of dog whistle talking points that we hear to this very day.
0: So they had a pretty comprehensive plan in place. They made laws. They had rules. They were going to attack people. And they even had a communication plan. So quite a machine.
1: Yeah, they had a communicate PR. They had a, a muscle division. They had the laws on their side. They were ready to go. Now, quickly, Virginia's school closing law was ruled unconstitutional. In January of 1959, as an alternative, though, the General Assembly tried another tactic. They repealed the compulsory school attendance law and gave counties and cities the option of operating public schools. The local option allowed officials to choose to close public schools.
0: So in essence this is this is called local control. this is so the state said we're not going to be involved in the education. we're going to let the counties and the cities handle it.
1: Exactly. Now, most counties and cities eventually moved to integrate their school system, but that was not the case in Prince Edward County. However, when ordered to by the courts on May 1st, 1959 to integrate the school, the county instead just decided to close the entire public school system. Y'all will not be coming to school today. Don't buy any school supplies. Don't buy any new school clothes because there won't be a school here.
0: Wow. So basically, hey. The we are closed sign was on the door of all public schools in this county.
1: Exactly. So they, sh- the fear of integration caused them to shut down an entire public school system. Now, once the public schools were closed, white officials in Prince Edward County created private schools to educate only white children. These schools were supported by tuition grants from the state and tax credits from the county now I'm okay not- <laughs> tax
0: credits I think we heard that before we talked about
1: tax credits and my thing if you want to shut down the school or whatever and open up your your own segregation state school or whatever don't ask people black people who pay taxes to foot the bill on that as well I think people forget that that everybody paid taxes regardless of color so black people who couldn't go to school were still paying for this crazy school
0: mm. Okay,
1: all righty. What happened next? Now, Prince Edward Academy in particular became the prototype for all white private schools and that were formed to protest around integration. So they were the prototype. Segregationists from all around Virginia and other su- southern states toured the facility to learn how they could get this done, what they had to do to create something like that. Now, even though massive resistance by the state government was over, Prince Edward County kept its public schools closed for a full five years, ensuring that Black students had no educational facility in the county because every public school was closed. So even when other Schools and people said, hey, we're not going to do this anymore. Let's try to give integration a try. Prince Edward County, they doubled down five years. They said, we're we're not going to open the public schools at all. And when we come back from the break, I will tell you and share with our listeners how that hurt Black students and families who were shut out of education for those five years.
0: Wow, Courtney, those county officials had a spiteful nature. It's actually, though, a good example of how whites will vote against their own self-interest if it holds Black folks back. And, you know, I ran across this quote by Robert F. Kennedy, who um, said something in 1963 that summed it up pretty well. He said this, We may observe, with much sadness and irony, that outside of Africa, south of the Sahara, where education is still a difficult challenge, the only places on earth known not to provide free public education are Communist China, North Vietnam, Sarawak, Singapore, British Honduras, and Prince. Edward County, Virginia.
1: Oh, that, that was a burn. <laughs> yeah,
0: it, was <laughs> it was a burn. It was a burn, but it was true. At that time, it was definitely true. Now, let's break. And when we come back, we'll hear about how Black students and families dealt with this crisis during those five years when no public schools we're open. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry?, and connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It, All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? See you there. Okay, Courtney, what happened to the Prince Edward County students after the public schools were closed for five years?
1: Well, you'll recall that in June 1959, the Prince Edward County Board of Supervisors voted not to fund the public schools and the newly created Prince Edward School Foundation leaders launched a statewide fundraising campaign to pay for private white-only schools. Now, a lot of county residents didn't think the schools would actually close, especially because of the court victories, because that's crazy. They shut down all the public schools. But like I said, when September came and then it went, The public schools never opened. Some 1,700 students were shut out of getting an education. Now, meanwhile, private Prince Edward Academy opened with nearly 1,450 students from kindergarten to high school. Clearly, these county politicians were serious. They were not playing around. They said, we're not going to integrate and nobody's going to school unless you're white and you're coming to this academy.
0: Wow. So basically, not a door open to a Black child
1: at all. Now for the black residents, the public school closings didn't just affect their children's education, they changed families. Now parents had to make the hard decision whether to send their children away just for them to continue to go to school. So this isn't like I'm going away to a different college or a trade school. These are people making decisions about elementary school, middle school, and high school. So they were sending minor children away. Some who could send their kids away to the North, they sent them to live with other relatives, but that was a burden on the other relatives, but they wanted their children to get an education. Now, the Black community's Prince Edward County Christian Association helped about 50 students attend Cottrell College which was an African Methodist Episcopal junior college in North Carolina that offered space in its high school department. Now, the Virginia Teachers Association placed um, other Prince Edward students in other Virginia schools, and they sponsored educational programs and volunteers from as far away as New England came to tutor and work with the students so they wouldn't fall so far behind. Now, nearly 70 Black children left home as a part of the Quaker American Friends Service Committee's placement program. They placed students with white and Black foster families in other parts of the country. Now, depending on the state laws, it depended on where they could go, but parents often had to sign over their children to the social welfare system. And that's a whole other thing that we, we could tackle about racism in the, the welfare system. But parents had to make the choice of giving up their rights for their child to get an education or not giving them an education at all. Now, several Prince Edward Black women, including former public school teachers, began a grassroots uh, initiative to start schools in their homes and churches. Now, these groups created training centers for students that focused on study, but also citizenship, Black history, art, current events, and recreation. They weren't full-fledged schools because the Black community didn't want to get into the private school business or jeopardize the NAACP suit. So they had to kind of toe the line carefully. But for two years, this group served between 600 and 650 Virginia children. Now some parents found ways to get their children schooling in neighboring counties. For example, the father of a student by the name of Dorothy Holcomb rented a dilapidated house in neighboring Appomattox County in order to establish residency. Every morning he drove his children to the empty house so they could get on the bus that would take them to a public school. Other relatives joined them and at some point Holcomb remembered 25 kids were you know, lined up in front of the dilapidated house getting on the bus to go to school. But many rural families didn't have the resources to transport their children long distances, and others couldn't leave their farms. So instead of going to school, children played a lot. They read magazines and looked at the Sears catalog. And for a kid, I think that sounds kind of fun. But after a while, you start to realize, like, I might be missing out on school.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's amazing how tenacious that black community was. They found a lot of different ways to try to get their kids educated, but that wasn't right. They were taxpayers. They had a right to public school just like anybody else. What a what a damaging five years that had to have been. What a loss of education. What a way to tear families apart. It was that was just cruel. That was just crazy. Five years of insanity. So what happened? Uh, what what else was going on when in Prince Edward County?
1: Well, at first, white students at Prince Edward Academy didn't see life and school change as much as it did for for black students because they were going to school until the new campus opened in 1961. Academy students attended classes in 15 buildings, including churches um, and other locations. The academy, however, could not match the resources white students had enjoyed at the public school system. So that's kind of funny. They shut down the public school system and opened whatever this group of conglomerate buildings and shanties to teach these kids. But even the white children we losing out because they also had resources at the public school that they were now missing out on.
0: Mm, okay. So what again, we see again, that situation of voting against your best interests. Very true.
1: Cause classroom supplies were meager. There was no school lunch program. Students drove the buses. Now just imagine just, te- just teenagers driving school buses and the ex extracurricular activities were very minimal. But overall, despite all that, the conditions were better than what the Black students endured of not getting an education at all. Now, in spite of the conditions, influential white citizens throughout the South still bragged on and supported, which is crazy to me. This is (laughs) crazy. They're bragging about the school, but y'all don't even have school lunches, ma'am and sir. You can't even feed the babies. But you're bragging about the school, but I digress. Now, other Southern communities looked at Prince Edward for solutions to avoid integration and leaders came to just tour the academy, which, okay, but they, again, you got kids driving school buses and the babies can't eat, but take your tour at you know at first the school ran on state and county tuition grants and the general assembly also passed a bill that allowed county residents to deduct up to 25% of their property tax if they contributed to a private school Now, keep that concept in mind, because you'll hear something a little bit more about that later. But in August 1961, a federal court in Richmond, Virginia, ruled that Prince Edward County could not use public money to fund private education as long as the public schools were closed. This meant that some white families would no longer be able to afford the academy,
0: OK, I let, let me make sure I understand this so they could continue to run this private all white academy. But the state now said, we're not lo- going to give you any public money to do it.
1: Exactly. You cannot use taxpayer money because, again, Black people lived in Prince Edward County, so they were paying taxes while their children sat for five years. They were paying for education for a segregated school. So finally, a federal court said, hey, you can have your little segregated school. You can have your little KKK university, but you can't ask the public to pay for it. That's not
0: right. Okay. So the parents still wanted to send their kids. So what happened? They still
1: wanted to send their kids, but. Parents had to drain their savings and take on extra work to send their children to this school. Some families went into major debt trying to pay for this academy, and some children never finished school because the parents could not afford it. Now, other white residents were punished in other ways because not all of the county's white residents had wanted to close the public schools. Now, that didn't mean they were pro integration. Let's not get that twisted. We didn't have any kind of freedom fighters or anything going on like that. But they just didn't think that closing the school was a good idea. Now, some meant to strategize about reopening the public schools, but the anti-integrationists showed up to intimidate them. The next day, a list of the people who attended this meeting started circulating around town and the people were, were socially ostracized and their jobs were threatened. So this is some white on white crime to keep Black kids out of school, these people were fighting each other. People were saying, hey, I want to go back to public school. I can't afford the academy if I can't get help from the county. Like, let's just open the school back. And instead, they got their, you know, information and jobs threatened just to keep Black kids out of school.
0: Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. I bet that county was in a constant uproar in so many ways. So again, what happened next?
1: Well, by March of 1964, the Griffin versus County Board of Prince Edward County suit made it to the Supreme Court, and the court ordered that the public schools had to reopen. In September, after a five year hiatus, so think about that that's five years, but four years was somebody's high school cycle. Somebody missed their whole high school career, you know in this mess. Absolutely. um, That Prince Edward students returned to public schools that were intentionally underfunded. Nearly all the students were black and the private all white academy continued to operate. So that's where we get that idea where people like, oh, the intercity schools are so bad, so bad, because in this case, the reason why they were so bad is because they were underfunded on purpose. Mm -hmm. So yep. and the white students that went there that couldn't afford the economy, they the academy suffered as well because of, you know, these acts now,
0: against your own self-interest yep. okay, or like
1: my grandma would say, you're going to cut off your nose to spite your face. Yep. Yep. Now, reentry for many children back to school was very difficult. The schools were disorganized. Some students were reading far below grade level and their struggles to regain what they lost educationally remained throughout their lives.
0: You know, Courtney, I saw a video of some of the people who lived through this, the Black people who lived through it, and they still they are traumatized. They are still emotionally traumatized and they talk about how their lives were just upended and education was snatched away from them. So yeah, that was that was an incredible five years.
1: Yeah. You know, we always say education is something people can't take away from you, but somebody did take education away from these people. And it is, it's grossly unfair. Now, massive resistance and its aftermath, like we said, left deep it left a deep negative gash, not only on, on the students, but on Virginia's public education and race relations. It perpetuated the state's mostly segregated schools in major, major metropolitan areas. while while in rural counties, most white students were able to withdraw to p- private and usually all white academies that exist today. So that goes back to, like I said, the inner city schools. people, all you hear inner city schools, inner city schools. Well, this is what happens where people didn't want to integrate up until even now, inner city schools are sometimes looked down on and underfunded because of these types of situations and people that with the money and the opportunity to go to these mostly all white private schools, they don't feel that burn. They don't feel that, you know, that missing piece of their education.
0: Exactly, exactly. But okay, so that was in the 50s. And now let's bring it all the way up to now. What what has anything changed?
1: Well, I don't want to leave everyone with a with a sad, sad ending because there was a ray of hope. The Virginia Assembly took steps to try to rectify the toll Uh, that Prince Edward County's decision had taken on its Black residents. During the 2003 session, the assembly issued a resolution apologizing to the Prince Edward County students who lost five years of education. Mm. Also, the state set up a scholarship program in 2004 to pay for the belated education of those that were denied that opportunity. The scholarship program began with about a million dollars from the state, and Charlottesville Philanthropist John Klug donated another $1 million.
0: Well, Courtney, 2003 and 2004, you know, that's like about 50, you know, a a whole lot of years later. Uh, So it sounds like a little too much, too little, too late to me. By now, the students affected by this egregious situation, they're well into their 50s and 60s. So it might be too late for them to get an education, uh, that education that they were denied.
1: Well, I don't believe that Aunt Carol, because you've always told me it's never too late to get an education. And an article in the Cardinal News told about Vera Morton, who graduated from Virginia Western Community College in Roanoke just this year. Now, Morton was from Prince Edward County during the school shutdown. She's now 67, but she was able to graduate from
0: college Thanks to that scholarship program. Wow. Well, congratulations to her, Courtney. And, you know, thanks for making me eat my words. Getting an education is never too late. And I understand 783 other Prince Edward County students are eligible for this money. And if the General Assembly is wise, they'll make that money available to their descendants as well because they're impacted by this just like the uh, students were during the 50s.
1: I hope they do, too. But let's get back to what all this has to do with school choice. Now, hopefully no one has a school choice plan in mind that is as drastic as what happened in Prince Edward County. Whatever happened, but whatever happened to those segregation academies? I'm curious.
0: Well, Courtney, there are still remnants. Of the segregation schools, and most of them remain overwhelmingly white institutions, both because of their all-white history, as you told about from you know the '50s, and because they charge tuition fees, and those tuitions are you know they can be a barrier to parents who don't have the money. Uh, From 1958 to 1980, private school enrollment in the 11 states that formed the former Confederacy actually increased by more than half a million students. So this idea of pulling kids out of public schools and sending them to private schools, it, went, it continued, it continued up until the, uh, the 80s and it's still going on as we speak. And what also increased were efforts to fund private schools at the expense of public schools using, as we talked about earlier, those vouchers or tax credits to cover significant percentages of student tuition and operating costs. Now, a recent example in Clarksdale, Mississippi, shows how disparate the uh, racial uh, breakdown has been. Even in the year 2010, 92% of the students at a private school in Clarksdale, Mississippi, called Lee Academy, 92% were white, while 92% of the Clarksdale public high school students were black. And in communities where these former segregation schools like that operate, The taxes that support public schools are lower. They are much lower, meaning, of course, that those public schools are poorly resourced.
1: So it's kind of a tax break for the white parents, even though they pay tuition for private school, their taxes are lower so they can afford the tuition.
0: Yes, you have exactly described it. And this goes back to the point you made earlier when you asked listeners to pay attention to that 25% tax break that Prince Edward County gave parents back in 1959. It's very similar to the tax break these Mississippi parents are getting today. Now there's another way parents who send their children to segregated schools are benefiting. According to a 2021 Forbes magazine article, Uh, There was research done by the Network for Public Education, and it shows that versions of these segregationist policies are still in use in North Carolina, and federal tax dollars are helping to finance them. Here's how it goes. North Carolina received a $26.6 million grant from the Federal Charter School Program in 2018. Now remember, charters are a form of school choice. Now, 42 charters received a piece of that grant in North Carolina. Now, only 30 of those have a significant, have actually reported race and ethnic information. And of those 30, 11 have a significant overrepresentation of white students. Or what you would say an underrepresentation of Black students compared to the pop- population of the public school district in which they are located. So I would contend that in all probability, the schools that didn't report race and ethnic bra- breakdowns, they're actually going to be predominantly white, too. Now, there's another way that segregationist practices are going on today. The General Accounting Office. Uh, describes a eh, kind of a crazy situation called district secession, which is also a type of school choice. Now, this happens when schools break away from an existing district. So let's say we have an existing public school uh, district and a group of parents say, oh no, we don't want to be part of that, that public school district anymore. So they, they declare local control and they form their own new district. Now, the result that the GAO uh, report says is that segregation actually de- deepens when this happens. Now, remember, Prince Edward County was a very similar situation. They decided on local control and they broke away and basically created all these private schools, which was similar to creating a, a, a district. Now, during 10 years of research, the GAO found that overwhelmingly, these new districts were generally whiter, wealthier, and they had fewer Black and Hispanic students and those who are eligible for free or reduced lunch, which is usually used to measure poverty. So
1: just like the old Jim Crow South, folks are creating segregationist public school districts at the expense of people who don't have that choice. But let's get back to Milton Friedman. We didn't forget about him. What's up with him and his ideas about school choice?
0: (laughs) Well, I don't know. You know, Courtney, we give away the uh, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes Award every year, and he just might be Oh, yeah. He's, he's on the list. He's <laughs> he is on the list. He might be my top choice. So I'm glad you brought him up. Now, while parents and communities might think using the ruse of school choice to get away from sending their children to school with black and culturally different children is what they're doing. There's actually an insidious plan behind school choice that most people can't even fathom. Now, let let me tell you about Friedman. Remember earlier I told you that he began promoting quote educational freedom way back in 1955, just as Southern states prepared to resist the Brown v. Board of Education desegregation order. And he praised the Virginia voucher plan in his book that he wrote in 1962, and that book was called Capitalism and Freedom. He held up uh, that model of school, uh, held up what Virginia was doing as a model of school choice everywhere. Here's a quote, whether the school is integrated or not, he wrote, should have no bearing on eligibility for the vouchers. In other words, he knew the program in Virginia was designed to fund segregation academies and saw it as no barrier to receiving state funding.
1: Oh yeah, he's creeping up my list because he's, (laughs) yeah, that's crazy.
0: But all right, continue. (laughs) Now, Friedman and other conservative and libertarian thinkers gave what appeared to be a race neutral argument in favor of tax subsidies for private schooling sought by white supremacists. Now in doing so, this is what they basically did. They taught defenders of, seg- of segregation a crucial new tactic, which was basically stop using overtly racist rationales and instead tout more palatable ideas like liberty, competition, and market choice as the reason for school choice. Well, he's, other-
1: a, he's a <laughs> slick one, so don't don't be right, don't say the quiet part out loud. Right. Say the quiet part out loud. Make it like, oh, don't you want your kid to be in a competitive environment where you're free to choose the curriculum and you don't have those nosy politicians? Oh, wait, that sounds
0: familiar. (laughs) and, And actually, to a parent who doesn't know any better, it sounds pretty good because you're getting to make the choice. But here's the catch. Friedman was interested in far more than school choice. He and his libertarian allies saw vouchers as a temporary first step on the path to school privatization. He didn't intend for government to subsidize private education forever. He's known as saying, quote, in my ideal world, government would not be responsible for providing education any more than it is responsible for providing food and clothing. And in 2004, he went on to say private charity would be more than ample to assure that there were schools available for every child. In other words, just like government isn't responsible for putting food on our tables or clothing on our backs, Friedman believed that the government isn't responsible for paying for educating the general populace. Parents should bear that cost, just like they bear the cost of feeding their kids and clothing their kids. And for those who don't have the money to pay, well, charitable organizations would take care of educating those kids who couldn't afford private school. And four months before his death in 2006, he spoke at a meeting of the American Legislative Education Council, ALEC, and he said, the ideal way to give parents control of their children's education would be to abolish the public school system and eliminate all the taxes that pay for it. Oh wow! So, so
1: that is Prince Edward County without <laughs> all the ra- real racism up front. So oh wow! Yeah, he's he's definitely a candidate. He
0: is a no- he's nominated for a
1: Rutherford B A's Award.
0: <laughs> yep, yep, yep. I second that nomination. Now, here's the deal. If there were no tax dollars paying for education, who do you think foots the bill? Well, parents, of course. Now, theoretically, supposedly, parents could afford to pay that full cost uh, for education since there wouldn't be, they, you know, they're not gonna be sending tax dollars to the government to pay for it. They'd use those freed up tax dollars to shop the free market for education products that they want. Really though, in a nutshell, Privatization of education is the end game, Courtney.
1: That is not only a hot mess, but a scary thought. There's no way the supposed tax savings parents would get would cover the true cost of education. We'd really see an even bigger gap between the haves and the haves nots if Friedman had his say. But Ann Carroll, isn't the American Legislative Executive Council or Exchange Council, I'm sorry, Alec, that he was addressing the right wing network that brings conservative lawmakers together with corporate lobbyists to create model legislations that is it's cloned across the U.S. Am I right?
0: Yep. Yep. It's the one and the same. And it's also the group that has been accused of spreading racist and white supremacist policies targeted at minority communities. So, so far, with the help of ALEC, 2021 has proved a landmark for the school choice cause since Republican control of the majority of state legislatures is the norm right now. Seven U.S. states have created new school choice policies, and 11 others have expanded current policies with laws that authorize tax-funded vouchers for private schooling, provide tax credit, and authorized educational savings account to invite parents to abandon public schools, exactly what happened in Prince Edward County. It's also drafted bills calling for more regulatory freedom for homeschooling and charter schools and bills to create full-time online schools and open enrollment, uh, which will uh, allow students to attend any public school they want, even if it's in another district.
1: Now, that tax credit idea sounds like what we talked about. It's Prince Edward County all over again. So that school and all of its insidious uh, dealings is really like the, the root and the model. I don't want to say the root, but the model For what a lot of the school choice, you know, rhetoric and school choice plans come from, from that poisonous tree. Mm -hmm. Now, this takes us back to the definition of systemic racism. Policies that disadvantage one race over another are systematically racist. School choice policies seem to
0: fit that description to a T. Yes, they do. Now, here's another interesting and ironic point, Court conservative school choice advocates, the very same ones who were strong segregationists and opponents of Brown v. Board of Education, but you know, they, they look a little differently today. They're not wearing their hoods and burning any crosses. But that group has targeted black parents and people of color to be their allies they've worked to convince blacks and uh, people of color to see vouchers and charter schools as a way to escape the racial and class inequities of the less resourced public schools their children attend now of course these less resourced public schools are less resourced because these conservatives have you know kept the funding from those schools so it's kind of like the chicken and the egg but anyway they they formed this what I call this unholy alliance with the very people that they don't want to be bothered with uh, to help support school choice.
1: Of course, they're taking Friedman's advice, of, or like I said, they're not saying the quiet part out loud anymore, because who, what, if you look around and you see that your school is underfunded and you really don't know why, you don't know the insidious roots as to why and what you can do to help, your first thought, of course, as a parent is, I want my kid to have a good education. I know many people, people that I'm friends with, people in my family that are strong proponents of school choice with the belief that my kid is going to get a great education, but they don't know it's a wolf in sheep's clothing and they're sticking their
0: head in the wolf's mouth. Exactly. And what school choice supporters don't understand Is that white folks who are covertly or or overtly trying to keep black and white kids from going to school together, and black folks who are trying to get the best education for the kid for their kids, they are missing the real point. The real end game for school choice is neither. It's not necessarily to keep black and white kids from going to school, and it's not about getting kids a better education. The real goal is completely privatizing the system of education where parents pay the cost entirely. Friedman didn't intend for government to subsidize private education forever. Rather, once the public schools were completely gone, Friedman envisioned parents eventually shouldering the full cost of private schooling without support from taxpayers. Now here we need to remember, Just as tax credits, vouchers, and education savings accounts can be given, they also can be taken away. Look at how easily Congress changes the tax laws to give and take away supposed tax breaks. For instance, I'm a homeowner, and I know this very well. Formerly, we had a very lucrative tax break for home mortgage interest. Over the years, that has been whittled down to almost nothing. The same will happen to government support for school choice over time, leaving parents holding the bag. Remember Friedman's words. The ideal way to give parents control over their children's education would be to abolish the public school system and eliminate all the taxes that pay for it. So
1: at the end of the day, it'll be the wealthy and upper middle class families that can access the best schools and education that they can pick and choose. But those families who cannot, which are disproportionately families of color, they might struggle or not be able to send their kids to school at all. So even though we cover systemic racism, people of all colors need to take a look at the school choice system for what it really is. Instead of creating education opportunities for any and every child, school choice may lead to something far worse. Remember the kids from Prince Edward County?
0: Black and white, they both suffer. Now, what's truly chilling, Courtney, is that education is just a tip of the iceberg. I implore our listeners to get and read the book, Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America, to learn how the Nobel Prize winning political economist James McGill Buchanan and his colleagues have been working for over six decades to alter every branch of government to disempower the majority, to undermine the unions, to privatize everything from schools to health care to social security, and to keep as many of us as possible from voting. Education is nearly the canary in the mine.
1: Just a, a warning of things to come. Well, that is our show for today, and as proud products of public education ourselves, we hope that we were able to teach you something about school choice, because at the end of the day, to make the right choice about anything, especially education, you need the whole story but in the meantime in between episodes if you're looking for us on social media or you're looking for old episodes or just wanting to see what we've got going on on our website please take time to visit us at www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry that brings today's episode to a close we hope you join us next time When we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.